Matthew 13 is our text. We're looking at verses 24 through 58. The topic we find there, Jesus informs us that as we are sowing the good seed of the word of God, our enemy will be at work sowing weeds. The title of our message, Thistle While You Work. Anyway, um, it's a hobby of mine. All right, that's, that's enough whistling. It was funny for the first 10 minutes. But anyway, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we do want to approach this text with um, open hearts, excited hearts, enthusiastic hearts to hear what your spirit has to say to the church and to us individually as Christians. In this text, Lord, you're going to talk about people having ears to hear. We want to have spiritual ears to hear. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here that's not a believer, they've never been born again, that your grace, Lord, would free their will to receive the word of God, that they could be saved today. We thank you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Top employers are known for providing an outstanding workplace environment for their workers. If you work for Google, for example, there are on-site doctors and medical services to keep you healthy. You're served free lunch and dinner. Massages, yoga, and car washes are part of the package. And there's an on-site bowling alley. Facebook employees get free transportation, dry cleaning, a company gym, and free meals. In addition, there's a candy shop on site and a vending machine filled with free computer accessories and free bicycle repair. At SC Johnson & Son, so it's not all these young internet companies, you know them as the makers of such brands as Glade and Pledge and Windex, especially if you're Greek, there's an on-site employee concierge to handle all of life's chores. Concierges send packages and flowers, pick up groceries, shop around for the best deals on car insurance, take your car in for service, including oil changes, and stand in line for concert tickets for you. By the way, next week we're going to be uh, looking for a concierge uh, here at Calvary. There's no pay involved, but we could sure use one. <laughs> I want to have a happy workplace. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> wherever you work to earn your daily living, all of us as Christians are additionally tasked with what the New Testament calls the work of the ministry. It's from Ephesians chapter 4. We are equipped in the church to go out into the world to do this work of the ministry. What kind of workplace environment is the world? Well, while your particular conditions can vary, Overall, you can expect an adverse workplace environment. I say that because of our text here in chapter 13. Jesus has just explained to his disciples that in between his first and second comings, their work was to spread the gospel. He expressed it as a parable, the parable of the sower, in which they were the sowers and the seed was the word of God. He promised them incredible returns of 30-fold, 60-fold, and even 100-fold. Their workplace environment, however, would be adverse. The devil was also going to be at work in the field seeking to hinder the progress of the gospel. I'll organize my thoughts then around two points. Number one, the kingdom will prevail despite your adverse work environment. And number two, the king prevailed despite his adverse work environment. Let's take a look first of all, beginning in verse 24, at our adverse work environment. Now, 
chapters 12 through 15 of the Gospel of Matthew are a hinge upon which history turns. The nation of Israel rejected Jesus as their king, and with him they rejected the establishing of the literal physical kingdom of God on the earth. Jesus would return to, uh, to heaven to await his second coming when all Israel will be saved, they will receive him as king, and they will enjoy that kingdom on the earth. The question that naturally arises is, what is going to happen in between these two comings of Christ? The answer is the mystery revealed through the seven parables of chapter 13. The gospel will be seed spread by sowers into the soil of men's hearts up until the final harvest at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so it'll take us all through the church age, past the resurrection and rapture of the church, through the great tribulation to the second coming of the Lord. But as I already said, disciples are not the only sowers and we should expect opposition and therefore adversity in the workplace. And so verse 24, another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, the parable itself is, or the illustration itself is straightforward, so rather than spend time commenting on the details, uh, let's get right to Jesus' commentary, beginning in verse 36. He says, or it says in verse 36, excuse me, then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the son of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil, the harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. We are not the only sowers at work during this time. An enemy sows the seeds of weeds among the wheat. The enemy is Satan himself, who vigorously opposes the word and the work of God. The weeds that Satan sows are called the sons of the evil one. Just as through the course of the age Christ will work through those who are the sons of the kingdom, so Satan will work through those who belong to him and become his instruments to oppose the word of God. Now, earlier in Matthew's gospel, Jesus said he was able to bind the strong man. He was referring to Satan and his activity on the earth. Had the Jews received their king and his kingdom, the devil would have been bound. In fact, 
In the book of the Revelation, one of the very first things Jesus does upon his second coming is have Satan bound with chains and thrown into the abyss for a thousand years for the duration of the kingdom of heaven on the earth. In between the two comings of Christ, Satan is unbound. He goes about the earth like a roaring lion seeking to devour. He is a liar. He is a thief. He is a murderer. And he's not alone in his activity. Fully one-third of the created angels followed him in his rebellion and are now organized as a military force to wreak havoc upon the earth. Now, a person doesn't have to be demon-possessed to be a son of the evil one. In fact, being possessed would make them easier to spot. Imagine this morning after the worship when you get up in fellowship and greet someone. If you said, hi, I'm Gene, who are you? <laughs> Glad to meet you. Or if they just sat there and turned their head all the way around and said hello to you. Pretty obvious that they were demon-possessed or they had just watched The Exorcist for the 10th time, one of those two. Uh, and so we're not talking about people being possessed This is something far more sinister and subtle. This is people who are in the church that are not believers in Jesus Christ. They're not genuine, although they appear to be for a time. And they nevertheless are there to sow discord. They are liars. They are robbers. They are murderers. Uh, in, in a spiritual sense, if not a physical sense. Uh, and so this is what the Lord is telling us. So uh, obviously, I would say, having sons of the evil one who we cannot always distinguish from believers, that makes for an adverse workplace. At the very least, we must be constantly on our guard, being led by the Holy Spirit, so as not to be deceived by those who may even profess to be Christians, but who remain dead in their sins and are the tools of the enemy of the gospel. Now, I should mention, too, that this parable is not teaching that we should tolerate sin among the people of God. That's a a totally different thing. He's not saying there'll be sin in the church. Don't worry about it. Just hang out, and everything will be fine in the end. No, There are clear directives and commands in the scripture about how the church is to deal with sin and sinning members. This is just a warning that as we are going through this church age, there will be opposition from the devil right in the church. It's not just the liberal news media or the liberal churches or the world in general, but right in churches. And if you've, you know, maybe heard strange stories about things that have happened in churches and church, not not every church split, but some things that happen in churches are the result of tares among the wheat, of people who are working, whether they know it or not, to undermine the work of God in that church and to tear down and to destroy what uh, is being built up. Okay, so this sowing mission is not going to be as easy as we might have been led to believe by the promise it would succeed. The other parables are going to emphasize this same idea taking us through uh, this whole age in which we live. And so back up in verse 31, another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field which indeed is the least of all the seeds but when it is grown it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. You might hear criticism if you read commentaries that the mustard seed isn't really the least of all the seeds. Well, it was the least of all the seeds that farmers worked with in the first century in Israel. 
And if that's not a satisfactory answer, I'm told that the word for least doesn't have to mean smallest, but it can mean smaller. And this is an example of what I mentioned last week. We don't want to put the parables under a microscope and find a five or ten meanings for every piece of information in the parable. This parable is easy and straightforward. It has one single thing to teach us. Just as Jesus said in the parable of the weed and the tares, putting his disciples on notice they would face opposition, so uh, is this parable teaching the same thing. Um, Like a mustard plant, the kingdom in the hearts of men that exist now will grow from meager beginnings into something unexpectedly great and it cannot be stopped, Uh, but there will be problems along the way. Now, we have the advantage of history, and we can see what Jesus meant. We're in a great position because we have the parables he told his disciples about what was going to happen, and we see what actually happened. So what happened? Well, 11 men met in the upper room with Jesus Christ on the eve of his crucifixion. That was the, in one sense, you'd say the sum total of his followers after three and a half years. 120 gathered to pray between his ascension and the descent of the Spirit on Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, that number increased to how many? 3,000. Then in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, another 5,000 are mentioned. At the close of the book of Acts, it could be recorded that the whole world had heard the gospel, meaning it had gone out into, uh, it was spreading throughout the whole world. And so you see from a meager beginning, it began to grow and grow and grow. And that's what the mustard seed and the mustard bush is telling us. But with the incredible growth comes opposition and adversity, and that's represented by the birds of the air who come and nest in its branches. Now, while it is possible to interpret the birds as something good, it seems unlikely that is what Jesus intended. And I say that because in the parable of the sower, birds were evil. They were the agents of Satan who were used to snatch away the seed of the gospel. It's unlikely they would be something bad in one parable and just a few verses later be something good. It would be super confusing. You wouldn't have any idea how to interpret parables if these images changed from minute to minute. And so uh, we see this along the lines of the parable of the weed and the tares where nothing can stop the growth of the kingdom of God as the gospel is being spread, but there will be serious opposition. The seed's growth attracts the presence of evil depicted as birds trying to dilute the church while taking advantage of its benefits. The work we have been given, the work of the ministry, will succeed, but our workplace will be infiltrated by evil. Verse 33, another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. While it's possible to interpret the leaven as something good, it again seems unlikely that this was what Jesus intended. In other passages, Jesus himself used leaven to represent the false teaching of the Pharisees and the unbelief of the Sadducees. And so just in keeping with uh, the normal use of this illustration by Jesus, we would say that leaven is a bad thing. The parable of the leaven then continues with the theme of these parables, namely that efforts will be made by our enemy to contaminate our growth and health from within. You might summarize these last two parables by saying that the devil attends church with us. 
He gathers with us in order to divert our resources and to try to corrupt us from within. Don't look at the person next to you. No, but it's true. In the history of the church, there's, there's always work uh, out in, in churches, in individual churches, and in the church at large to undermine the gospel, to undermine the key doctrines of Christianity, to undermine Christian living. Uh, and, and it's a battle throughout this age because Satan is unbound. He was left unbound uh, because of the rejection of the kingdom. He's our adversary. He wants to lie to you. He wants to rob you. He wants to murder your Christianity. And so this is what's happening in this age. On our side, we're thinking, hey, this is going to spread. Nothing can stop it. Uh, and here's another example of that historically. I love the, the fact that we have history uh, to look at. Some of you are not old enough to re- remember when nobody knew what was going on in communist China. Uh, there was a president by the name of Richard Nixon. Anybody remember him? Some of you do. Uh, but younger people don't know this. Nixon kind of, he, he, there's a, proverb in Star Trek, only Nixon could go to China, you know, and, and uh, it, it's, a, it's funny, but Nixon did go to China, and, and we didn't know anything about China much from this century until then, and from a Christian point of view, Christians used to worry and wonder what was going on with Christians and the church in China, because there were no missionaries. No one could go into China as a missionary, uh, and, and so the thought was that the church was in trouble in China, because it didn't have the help of the West and we, you know, we weren't pumping resources into it. And then when we got back into China, what did we find? There were multiplied millions of Christians in the underground church movement by the move of the Holy Spirit. When we visited China in the 80s, uh, it was fantastic to, to meet with the underground church and realize that in, in some cases they only had a, a couple of verses or a portion of a page of a Bible and yet the Holy Spirit was doing such a tremendous work there. And so that's what we're talking about. Jesus says, hey, there's gonna be a tremendous return on the preaching of the gospel, 60-fold, 100-fold in some cases, but it's not going to be without sincere, serious, vicious even, opposition. Verse 34, all these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables. Without a parable, he did not speak to them. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. The scripture Jesus referred to here was Psalm 78, verse 2. We saw in our last study that parables were a kind of secret language meant to reveal truth to believers while concealing it from Jesus' enemies. Jesus wasn't trying to keep anyone from getting saved. He was talking to the people who had heard his preaching and who had witnessed miracle after miracle, sign after sign, wonder after wonder, but who nevertheless hardened their hearts to reject him. To them, no further revelation would be given than what was already sufficient to have saved them. And instead, he began to prepare his disciples for this mystery form of the kingdom, this in-between time when the kingdom of heaven would be in the hearts of men. By the way, obviously you understand from these parables that the world is not going to get better and better. The church is gonna grow. It's gonna become massive. It's gonna become huge in terms of its spread throughout the historical period and in every continent and in every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. 
but we are not going to take over the world and prepare it for Jesus Christ because we're going to face this opposition. We're going to have to be removed and then Jesus is going to still bring the great tribulation uh, which is going to prepare the world for his second coming. Now drop down to verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. In the Old Testament, Israel is specifically called God's treasure. Psalm 135 verse four, the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his special treasure. You read the same thing in Exodus 19 verse five. It's not hard to see Israel as God's hidden treasure in between Christ's comings. Could it not be said that by scattering the Jews all over the world that God hid them in the world for safekeeping? For many centuries, it looked like Jews would be exterminated. Certainly very few people held out any hope that they would be preserved and be a nation again in their ancient land, but they are, and they are God's treasure. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. If the treasure is Israel, the pearl represents the church. Commentators point out that just as a pearl is something beautiful formed from an irritation in the oyster's flesh, so the church is formed from the wounds in Jesus' flesh as he died on the cross. It's a single pearl because while building his church, uh, it is from, uh, there are no real distinctions when it comes to being a member of the church. He doesn't distinguish between Jew or Gentile, male or female, uh, slave or free. Uh, there's no ethnicity, there's no race, there's no language barriers. Everyone on the earth is uh, capable of being a member of this unified church. And so while building his church composed of Gentiles and Jews, the Lord is also preserving Israel as a chosen nation and will return to fulfill all of his promises to them. Parable of the dragnet follows, and that depicts the second coming in light of the devil's activities to ruin things. Verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind. And when it was full, they drew to shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from the just, cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now, we've already said that an angel binds Satan and casts him into the abyss. Now we see that angels will separate believers from non-believers at the second coming. Believers who are alive on the earth at the time of the Lord's return will enter into the thousand-year kingdom as its citizens. No unsaved person will enter the Lord's millennial kingdom. The destiny of the wicked ultimately be the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, Jesus meant the wicked would be cast into the lake of fire. That's in Revelation 20. However, they will not immediately be consigned to the lake of fire. Initially, they go to Hades, evidently by experiencing physical death. The wicked will be detained in Hades until they are resurrected for judgment before the great, uh, I always say it, the white, white won't, the great white throne, after which they will be consigned to the lake of fire for eternity. Without going into a lot of detail, if you're a believer and you die, you're absent from your body and present with the Lord. You're immediately in the presence of Jesus Christ in heaven. If you're a non-believer and you die during this in-between time, you still go to Hades 
which is described in Luke chapter 16 as a place of, a temporary place of torment and suffering to await a final resurrection when you will be judged for having rejected Christ and then be cast alive into the lake of fire. So that's the sequence of events. Jesus said to them, have you understood all these things? They said, "Uh, yes, Lord. Well, I think it's cute that when asked if they understood, they said yes, because even after Jesus rose from the dead, they were still unsure of these things. They were still asking the Lord if he was going to establish his kingdom right then. I'm not suggesting they were lying. They understood what the Lord was saying on some level. It would make greater and greater sense to them as time progressed, and especially as they were filled with the Holy Spirit after the day of Pentecost. We are similar to the disciples in that we say we understand things, but simultaneously we know that there are multitudes of things that we have yet to understand, and that's why we keep coming to the word over and over and over again. I don't know about you, but there's only, there's only a couple of books, um, more than a couple, but there's only a few books that I would reread I'm, because I just love them so much. And all the literature, think of all the books there are. Everybody seems to be able to write a book. You've probably written a book while you're sitting there this morning. I mean, everybody writes books, especially now in the era of self-publishing. There's only a couple of books that I really enjoy reading over and over and over again. But when it comes to the Bible, I can't read it enough, can you? Over and over and over. Every year, let's read through the Bible. Let's take this passage and study it. Let's read. Uh, if you start coming to the Bible, so, yeah, I read the Gospel of Matthew back in 95. You've got problems. We understand that every time it yields new insight or that at least is capable of doing that because it's alive and it's powerful. Uh, and so that's, that's the idea. So I can say, yeah, I understand that, but I don't fully understand it. I only see through a glass darkly and I'm going to progress in my understanding. Verse 52, he said to them, therefore every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Jesus considers his disciples to be trained scribes. It means we are to be teachers and interpreters of the gospel. We draw from what was old, this would be the Jewish scriptures we call the Old Testament, as well as the new revelations that accompanied the new age in between the two comings of Christ that we call the New Testament. You don't have to be a scholar or to have letters after your name that indicate further formal education. Just teach what you know about Jesus, be growing in knowledge, and then teach what you know. When I first got saved, uh, I heard a pastor uh, uh, give a message, and he said, if you only know John 3, 16, you know enough, and you're saved, then you know enough to share Christ. Somebody might ask you, well, what about this thing with the flood? I don't know, but I know that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and that I've been born again. Then next week, learn another verse. And, and keep growing until you can answer more and more and more. But you don't, you don't need to be a scholar. In fact, these first guys that were with the Lord, at one point the Jewish scholar said, what's up with these guys? They are ignorant men who have been with Jesus. I don't want to call you ignorant, but let's call ourselves ordinary. Ordinary individuals who have been with Jesus over and over and over again studying his word. The kingdom, uh, the current form of the kingdom while Jesus is in heaven will prevail. The word that is sown will produce 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. It will grow. It has grown from a meager beginning to include people throughout history from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. 
When the Lord returns, he will find faith on the earth and saints will be welcomed into the kingdom on the earth. Along the way, we expect the activity of Satan opposing us at every turn. Our work will succeed, but our workplace can be filled with adversity as our enemy sows alongside us, sits next to us in church, and seeks to undermine the work. No one said it was going to be easy, and as we close, we'll see it wasn't easy for Jesus either. The chapter ends sort of abruptly with the story of Jesus' last visit to his hometown of Nazareth. I see a little of what could be called pathos in it, meaning it causes me to feel sympathy or sadness for the Lord. Fully God, he was fully man, and his time in Nazareth was adverse to his work. Nevertheless, the Lord prevailed, and he completed his mission for you and I. Verse 53, now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. When he had come to his own country, meaning Nazareth, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Some of you may have noticed that the Winter Olympics are on TV. As always, there are a lot of human interest stories as you get to know the individual athletes. Erin Hamlin took home the bronze for the United States in women's luge singles. She is the first American to medal in the luge as a single, and so we applaud her. I was reading an article about her. It said, it happens all the time to Ron and Eileen Hamlin. They go shopping someplace around their home, pull out a credit card, and get asked the same question as soon as somebody sees their name. Do you know Aaron Hamlin? Those questions won't go away anytime soon. Not now. Not after what the pride of Remsen, a little town with no stoplights and where everybody knows everybody else, did Tuesday night. Great story. Inspiring story. Small town pride in one of their own excelling on the big world stage. Why wasn't Jesus the pride of Nazareth? His fellow citizens had watched him grow up and lead a perfect life. They knew firsthand his humility as they traded with him in the carpenter shop. After leaving Nazareth, he had performed miracle after miracle, sign after sign. He defeated demons by the legion. He taught with authority as no one before him had ever taught. Upon his return, you'd think there'd be a banner. They'd throw a parade. Give him the key to the city. Instead, it says in verse 57, they were offended. But Jesus said to them, prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Maybe Jesus' 30 years of ordinary was too much for them to overcome. I mean, if you're an Olympic athlete, you've probably been training all your life. I might want to go out for the luge, but I'm probably not going to qualify. In fact, I'll probably kill myself. If you're an athlete, your neighbors and your friends, they recognize your talent. They hope you can represent them in the Olympics or as a pro athlete in some league. Jesus, in one sense, from a human point of view, from our point of view, he never did anything that indicated he was the Messiah. There's stories, fanciful stories about him healing little bird wings, you know, when he was a boy and people try and make up stuff because that's how we think. We think he needed training to be the Messiah and, and he needed to practice at miracles. Oops, that didn't go well. <laughs> Sorry about that, you know. And, and all. But you know what? He did train. 
He learned obedience, the Bible says. He walked in humility. He did only what was pleasing to his father. He lived a perfect, sinless life, but the people didn't recognize that as his preparation for their salvation because they didn't want the kind of savior that he was. And so he was not the pride of Nazareth. You think they'd have t-shirts. Jesus of Nazareth, but instead they were offended at him. The first time he preached in the synagogue years earlier, they tried to throw him off the cliff. This time, I think, was maybe worse because they were indifferent to him. Indifference can be worse than hatred when somebody just doesn't care about you at all and is offended at you. At any rate, not forgetting for a moment that Jesus was fully God, as fully man This is hard. This is hard for anybody, this level of rejection. I know guys in the ministry who have quit serving the Lord for way less than what Jesus had to endure. Guys that I've talked to who call and they say, I can't take it anymore. And they're talking about an issue in their church, a a family that's opposed to them or something like that. There's, There's just, it's too stressful, it's too strenuous and they just throw in the towel. The Bible says that Jesus Christ endured and he did it for the joy that was set before him. And do you know what that joy was? That joy was you. Let's pray.